Good morning. Good morning. I like that audio feedback. I like that. That's good. Good morning, everybody. My name is Brian. If you know me, I'm awesome. If you don't know me, pleased to meet you. I'm still awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, every time I get up on the stage, I love doing this. I don't get to do it super often. I love doing it, but I get a little nervous. Um, and I don't know if it's it's if it's helped or hindered by the fact that when when people see you in the lobby and they see you wearing the mic, they walk up to you like, they kind of greet you as if you're about to have like major surgery. Like, come, oh, you're talking today, and they give you like a real gentle hug. They like want to care for you. It's like that's what I feel like I need in that moment. So I'm, don't stop doing that. But um, I love that question. If you could change your name to anything, that's a that's a beautiful question for what we're going to talk about today. If you could change your name to anything, what would it be? I was sitting there thinking about it because I hadn't really process it until we were uh, doing our little prayer circle, and I thought, this week, it would be probably Stefan Curry, if I could change my name to anything, um, because he's awesome, and it, there's nothing more fun than watching LeBron James get dominated four times in a row in a closeout. I just lost like half of you, and I don't even care, all right? Uh, we are in week two of a series called Into the Wilderness, and I know that I'm weird. I know that I'm going to like alienate myself a little bit. But, and this didn't happen overnight, this is, this is the byproduct of a very unusual uh, lifestyle as a therapist, but when, um, when we think of the wilderness, when we think of like what we represent as the wilderness, the seasons of our life that don't feel like they were supposed to go that way, the seasons of our life that, feel us, uh, that leave us feeling very alone, like we're not quite cutting it, those seasons kind of excite me, because I sit in the wilderness with people every day. It's the greatest honor of my life. It wasn't until last week I was, I was listening to um, Kurt introduce this idea, preach on the idea of the wilderness, and he was talking about um, wilderness is the place that feels like you've been abandoned, but in reality, you're being rescued. And I had to lean over to Sarah, I'm like, I'm kind of a wilderness guide. That's kind of like what I do. People come in, and they, we cry together, and we go through these seasons where I can't, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel yet. Um, and the byproduct of that is I start to associate the wilderness with the outcome. I start to associate the desert with the spring of life that's coming at the end, because I, I know how it works if you stay in it. Uh, a couple months ago, I shared with you guys my own personal wilderness, a very real one in my life. It was a vulnerable area to share. It was a, it was a li- it was, I'm not going to lie, there's a little bit of shame in it. I talked a couple of months ago, and I shared with you that my backyard, so we moved into the property that I live in right now um, three years ago, and when we moved in, the backyard was in a state of neglect. Uh, when I talked to you about my backyard couple of months ago, it was in a state of like the walking dead. It was like a different, it was way beyond neglect. And there was something about sharing that with you, something about that kind of um, cathartic confession. And probably the 1,500 people that came up to me afterwards and asked me about it explicitly and repeatedly, how's your backyard doing? Um, that got the ball rolling. And there's been breakthrough in that area of my life. Can I show you the, the before? So this is my yard. I love the broken piece of furniture there at the, in the front. Like, that to me is what really brings it home, like the I am legend status. Like, and I rallied some research, and I rallied some men, 
And now, my backyard looks like that. And I had this, I was thinking through this before, uh, before today when I was prepared, and I realized something. Last time I told you about my backyard, I didn't show you a picture of it. I thought about it. It's not like it didn't occur to me that I'm going to share this, this place that I'm anxious about, this place that there's a little tinge of shame around. I could show you a picture. No, I think I'm good. Why? Because last time I didn't have an after shot for you. I only had the before shot. The wilderness is the before shot. So when we're in the wilderness and we don't have the after shot, the wilderness doesn't feel like this really cool thing that I'm proud of because now I can't stop. Everybody like says hi to me. I bust out my phone. I'm like, look what I've been doing. The wilderness doesn't feel like an accomplishment. It doesn't feel like you're in part, you know, one of of a two-part story. It's like act one and, and the breakthrough comes in act two. The wilderness just feels alone. The wilderness just feels like struggling with an addiction. It just feels like this pervasive anxiety that I wake up with every day and I can't breathe and, and I have to go to work and I have to go to church and I have to go see my friends and I have to tell my spouse that I'm fine because there's no other choice but to just keep going. The wilderness feels like being stuck. One thing um, when I was preparing for this, I got to connect with Johnny Ghost and, he was, and, and Johnny Ghost is an amazing man. If you guys don't know him, shake his hand because he's an incredible guy. He works with college students and he was telling me about this emerging trend with like high school, college age people, where they have the Instagram. I'm really lucky, if you're over the age of 30, you didn't grow up with Instagram. You didn't grow up with this like social pressure to have this polished narrative of yourself online. But kids that grew up with this have developed a Finstagram. Anybody ever heard of a Finstagram? It's gonna be like everybody like 20 years old. So a Finstagram is where you post the real deal. You have your official Instagram profile, right? That like. You put your feed and everything that's show-worthy, all of the act two stuff, all of the after shots go on your Instagram, and your Finstagram is a very limited audience. It's your inner circle. It's the people that you trust and feel safest with, and that's where you show the raw, the wake-up shot, no makeup, the, the, thing that, the thing you failed at, the thing that didn't go the way you are supposed to go. And so the, the Instagram, which is supposed to be the real us, has become the mask, and the fake Instagram is that really small circle we might let people into. Um, the paradox of that is if you ask anybody over the age of like 35 or 40, you ask anybody about a time in their life where God was very real to them, a time in their life where his love and his, his security, his provision, his safety, his goodness was tangible in their life, and they are not going to tell you about a mountaintop. They're not going to tell you about the, the, the aftershot. They're going to tell you about three years into their marriage when they discovered that their spouse was hiding something. They're going to tell you about struggling with infertility. They're going to tell you about going through a, an intense season of depression. If you ask somebody about God's goodness, people who have lived it, they're going to tell you about life's uncertainty because that's when all the armor and all the things that buffer us from our own limitations, that's when we finally get to, to feel God. Does that make sense? It is in the wilderness that we tend to think of ourselves, or at least feel, very rejected. But the wilderness is not our place of rejection. The wilderness is the place where we get restoration. 
the paradox is that I think, and I don't have direct scriptural evidence to back this up, I think in the wilderness when we get most hopeless, God is like at the edge of his seat. When we are, we're about to look at Moses, and we're going to look at Moses at his all-time low. We're going to look at maximum failure, uh, a season of life that would send any of us into a shame spiral, and he runs away from his life. And I think that's probably when God has never been more excited about Moses' life. That we think the wilderness tends to feel like the place where God gives up on us, but I think that's a place where God reminds us who we are. So just to like intro Moses, there's something we miss out by reading the Bible in English. And I'm not like a big word guy, um, but there's something that's so neat about the word Moses that when he's born, he's not born into like business as usual. He's born into a, a period of genocide. So Israel is slave in Egypt and Pharaoh's starting to get intimidated by their numbers. And so he decides for four years, he's going to kill all the boys at birth. As soon as they're born, if it's a boy, it's dead, a Hebrew. And so in an attempt to save his life, Moses' mom takes him down to the Nile and does something none of us could even conceive of doing and puts him in and says, all right, I know this way is certain death, so we'll see what God can do. And Moses gets rescued, and they name him. And it says, and they named him Moses, for he was drawn out of the river. And we lose it. In the English, that doesn't mean anything to us. But in the Hebrew, it says, and they named him Moshe, because Mishitehu, he was drawn out. His name is the verb to draw out. His name is the infinitive. It's not the he's the one that was drawn out. And it's not the drawer out of, like the guy who does the drawing. It's the to draw out. That is his story of rescue. And that is his calling on his life to be a rescuer at the same time. And he grows up with that. He grows up with that weight. He grows up very aware that he's the only living boy within four years of his birth. He grows up knowing that all of his Hebrew brothers and sisters are slaves. And he is part of the ruling class in Egypt. He is wealthy. He is powerful. He has status and fame. He grows up intimately aware of that. And the first time, and this is, this is to, some, to some degree, this is conjecture, because I can't, I can't not do this when I read the Bible. Because all the Bible says, if you read Exodus 2.11, it says, and one day after Moses had grown up, actually, let me read it, I'm sorry. Let me read it out of, uh, if you guys need a Bible, these blue Bibles are waiting for you. I love reading out of these. Moses grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw the Egyptians beating the Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So this is the conjecture part. This is me like Moses grows up under these conditions of insane privilege, wealth beyond our dreams, power, status. He literally wears a mask of makeup that says, I'm special, I'm important. And he's very aware of the fact that his people, his bloodline, are slaves right next door. And so somewhere around the age of 40, he gets an itch. He has never done this before. And he says, for some reason, I have to go see this. For some reason, the mask, the wealth, the power, the status, all the things that make me feel so good most of the time, for some reason, those aren't filling the tank anymore. 
And so he goes out to see his own people. And he sees them being oppressed, and he's overwhelmed. He knows who he is. He's the deliverer. He knows his job. He knows what God is calling him to do. And he takes his first attempt at setting Israel free. The problem is he does it as an Egyptian. He does it as a prince. He does it as a man of power and wealth and status. And of course, anytime we do something in our own, in our own power, anytime we do something in our own mass, there's going to be a little bit of an impulse to hide it, to hide the real way that we walked out our calling. And so he buries this man that he murders in the sand. It goes on to say, When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as, the, as you killed the Egyptian? The Mo then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. And when, Moses, or when Pharaoh heard of this, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled. One hint, one indicator that we are not walking in our true identity. We're not walking in what I call in my office a lot, the true self. One hint of that is that something is hidden. And it might not even be the behavior, because a lot of our masks, a lot of the ways that we kind of put together a sense of self aren't shameful things, aren't things that we typically... So he murdered somebody. He flexed his own muscle to walk out his calling. And that's easy for us to understand. I'd want to hide that too. Not only is it illegal, but it's shameful. He hid it. He waited until no one was looking. It's not like there was this heat of passion and, and a, uh, a Hebrew was being beaten. And he said, no, you won't do that. And the guy accidentally died. He waited. He watched it happen. He waited and he murdered him in silence. But a lot of our masks don't look overt like that. A lot of our masks are... I'm just going to do whatever keeps peace in my marriage. Or I'm going to take care of myself over here when no one is looking at my computer or in a bottle or fill in the blank so that I can be online and have no needs at work or have no needs in my, my home. It's not always the thing that leaves us feeling shameful where we actually need to show up and be known. The shame is just the way that we keep from being known when we're in front of people. Does that make sense? So at 40 years old, he shows up to do the job of the deliverer, but he shows up to do it as a conqueror instead of a messenger. There's something really, really powerful about confession. Like I was talking about, I share with you my backyard, this thing that when people would like come over to our house, I would like be extra careful to make sure the blinds are as closed as possible. We don't, we don't even like post in the back of our house before because like the, the accidental possibility that they might look, look. And I saw some of you, David Balderson, when you come over to our house after me giving that message and you like peeking through the blinds just to see Brian's shame, I saw it. It's all right. It's all right. I got the after shot, so now it's, it's, it's okay. We can talk about it. Um, but there is something about being known that interrupts the power of shame. And what we tend to think of as confession, I think we need like a whole rebranding campaign around confession. Because what we think of as confession, what I grew up thinking of as confession, was that's, that's the time in my life where I like, I admit how really wretched I am. 
That's the time in my life where I let somebody in and I show them that I'm really not worthy of the, of the love and the belonging that you share with me. But maybe if I follow the rules and I confess, maybe I can get my way back. And that's not what the word confession means at all. If you break down that word confession to the Latin, con, with, fessore, meaning to stand. The word confession means to stand in agreement with who God says that you are. So anytime we confess and we, we bring the thing that's most shameful, the thing that I would, the, I would most want no one to ever see about me, and I tell my brother, or I tell my pastor, or I tell my best friend, man, I'm really struggling with resentment towards my spouse. I'm really struggling toward, with gossiping. I'm really struggling with um, pornography, and nobody knows. What I feel like I'm doing is I'm revealing how disgusting I am. What I'm actually doing is agreeing with God that that thing isn't me. When I say I'm struggling with this, what I'm saying is something other than me is, is getting in the way of, of the way I see myself. When we think about what it means to walk in our identity, walk in who God says that we are, I think so often we try and do that. We show up at church, we we go to Bible study, we, we participate in our small groups, and we try and walk in our identity without ever letting go of our false one. But you can't take hold of your true identity until you're willing to let go of your false one. I can't both be a child of God and somebody who identifies with my sin. I can't identify with both. You see, when we see Moses running away, Moses isn't running away from God. He might feel like he is. Moses is running away from Moses. Moses is running away from Moshe, the one who was drawn out to draw people out. Moses is running away from his true identity. The problem with that is, and we all can relate to this, I can't run away from my true self without running away from God too. I can't run away from my true self and cling to God. I can't um, identify with my shame, identify with my sin, think of myself as the person who has to um, pretend that everything's okay, and on the inside, I feel like a fraud and still get close to God's, to God's love because God's love is going to be this ever constant reminder that I'm a fraud. God's love is going to be this ever present reminder that I am not my sin. And until I'm willing to let go of that identity, I can't be close to God's love. So God shows up in Moses' life. And really, if you read the text from chapter 2 to chapter 3, it's like this breath. It's just like three sentences. And he fled into the wilderness, and he stumbled on a tribe, and then he was out shepherding sheep, and God showed up. There's no reference to how much time he spent in the wilderness. But later in Numbers and in the New Testament, we find out that that was a period of 40 years. That for 40 years, the guy who was raised as a ruler, the guy who was raised with everybody telling him, you are the mask. You are Egyptian royalty. You are a man of power. You are your wealth. You are your status. He spent 40 years being a nobody. He spent 40 years with everybody he loved, everybody who he could identify as his people, his bloodline, thinking he was dead. And he spent 40 years coming to peace with that. One of the most powerful things that we, we are shown, but it doesn't explicitly say it, 
is why did the wilderness transform Moses? I think it's because Moses found community and belonging as a nobody. That he was able to finally let go, and it was, to be fair, violently ripped from him, let go of the status and the prestige and the wealth. And then because he was willing to let himself be known in that, to cultivate a sense of tribe and belonging as a, no, as a nobody. When God shows up 40 years later and he says to him in uh, 3.9, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. This is God speaking. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. And Moses is thinking, I already did that. I'm not the guy. I tried, I failed, move on. Come, I will send you to Moses, that you may bring my people, that you may Moshe, my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the, ch the children of Israel out of Egypt? Is that not the question every single one of us has asked at least one point? If you've ever been in the wilderness, and maybe if you're young, your wilderness doesn't seem that dramatic. Maybe your wilderness is feeling like an outsider at school, feeling like there's, there's not a friend group that you really belong to, feeling overwhelmed by your schoolwork. But if you've ever been in a wilderness, you know what it's like to ask, but who am I? God answers him, and he doesn't even tell him who his name is again. He just says, but I'll be with you. Moses asks, who am I? And God says, I'll be with you. You want to know who you are? You're my messenger. You want to know who you are? You're my child. You want to know who you are? The person I called. You're the guy that I'm with. We have all done this in the wilderness. We've all done this in that place in our life where, that we wouldn't post on Instagram, that place that feels really shameful and really alone and we feel scared, and we feel like we're not cutting it, and we ask the question, who am I? And God looks at us the same way you would look at your own son or daughter, and he says, you want to know who you are? You're mine. You are mine. That's your identity. You're my Moshe. You're the one I rescued, and you're the one that I'm going to use to rescue. You were never supposed to flex your own muscle. You were never supposed to feel the weight of having it all together. You were supposed to feel the weight of trusting that I got you. One of my favorite authors, a guy named David Brenner, he wrote a book called The Gift of Being Yourself. And he's both a, a theologian and a therapist, so I geek out on this guy, as you can imagine. And one of... Uh, one of his passages in the book, The Gift of Being Yourself, he says, the self that begins the spiritual journey is the self of our creation. It's the self that I, I picked up along the way. It's the self that was handed to me when um, I realized I get a lot more reward and a lot more praise and a lot more positive feedback for not being anxious and just being fine and putting on a smile than I do for admitting that I feel really scared right now or admitting that I don't have the energy to get out of bed right now or admitting that I actually don't know if I'm gonna make the sale. I don't know if I'm gonna get the grade. I don't know if it's gonna be okay. I actually can't afford the Lexus in my driveway. I get a lot more praise for saying, how are you doing? I'm fine, I'm awesome. It's the self that we create. It's the mess that we've 
picked up and has been given to us along the way. The self that we thought ourselves to be. This is the self that dies on the journey. What we might say is, this is the self that we have the opportunity to let die in the wilderness. The problem is, we have to let it die. And that's painful, and it's uncertain, and there's risk involved. The self that arrives is the self that was loved into existence by divine love. This is the person that we were destined to be from eternity. It is the I, and I love this because this is taken from the, the chapter that we're looking at right now. When Moses says to God, who should I say sent me? And he says, I am has sent you. Meaning, identity itself, belonging itself has sent you. You've got nothing to prove has sent you. You've got no muscle to flex, nobody to impress, no wealth to accrue has sent you. You're enough as you are has sent you. It is the I that is hidden in the I am. And it comes as this reality that fulfillment, our own personal fulfillment, our own personal sense of enoughness only comes when we let the self that we made up get emptied out. Fulfillment only comes from being emptied. I once heard Brene Brown talk about the midlife crisis. And she said, it's funny, we tend to think of the midlife crisis as being that time in our life where we um, grapple and struggle and stress out about the fact that we are one day going to die. She said, the midlife crisis is not fear of death. The midlife crisis is death itself. The reality is that we spend the first half of our life constructing a sense of self. And, and if we are lucky, if we let ourselves wander into the wilderness, we spend the second half of our life letting that self die so that we can find a true sense of our own self. And the process of that becoming, the process of stepping into our own identity, is the process of letting God's truth about who we are become our truth, and the way that happens is through living it. This tends to feel really complicated to people. This tends to feel like we need a, a Tony Robbins book to like walk out our identity. And it could not be more simple. I think, in fact, the reality is it's so simple it escapes us. The first step in letting God's truth about who you are become your truth is to name it, is to say it out loud. If you can't do that, if the idea of saying the thing that you've been hiding for years is overwhelming and terrifying, then maybe you can just name it to yourself. Maybe you can just write it down. And in doing so, be courageous enough to admit that maybe that thing you're hiding isn't you. Maybe the anxiety that you're carrying isn't you. Maybe the depression that you're going through isn't you. Maybe the sin and the thing that you're ashamed of that you do in the locked door isn't you. And if you really want to give God an opportunity to turn your life upside down, bring someone in. Don't be there alone. People come in all the time thinking that the problem is their circumstances. The problem is my husband or my wife doesn't understand me. The problem is my child is out of control. The, pro the problem is I don't know when um, I'm going to get the promotion or make the next sale. And the reality is the wilderness isn't a dangerous place. 
And I know that's a big statement to make. The only thing dangerous about the wilderness is trying to do it alone. Why did Moses get transformed? Because he found belonging as a nobody. He found belonging in the wilderness. So when God came to him and said, hey, I'm ready to remind you of who you really are in a state of total brokenness and faith, he was able to receive that. If you really want to see God move in your life, if you want to see, if you want to actually know what freedom feels like, then there are people that are going to be in the back of this room in a minute to pray with you. There are pastors and staff members here that can be trusted with your secrets. And if, if the only thing you can rally, if the only thing you can do is to just name it to another person, I promise you it will change the relationship you have to your shame. I don't care if it's pornography or fear in your marriage or pervasive anxiety or depression. You cannot and should not ever try to do it alone. John Maxwell said that there is no life as empty as the self-centered life. There's no life as unfulfilling as wearing a mask. And there is no life more centered than the self-empty life. That is probably the scariest thing we'll ever do. But if I can let myself be known in the mess, in the shame, in the anxiety, in the depression, I will fundamentally change the relationship to that thing and I will give God an opportunity to squeeze in there and write a new story. So I'm gonna pray and I just wanna challenge you guys. It doesn't have to be a prayer member, it doesn't have to be a staff member. If you can name it, you change the relationship. Lord, I thank you for open hearts. I thank you for the courage that it takes to even sit through a message like this. God, I pray over my own life, over the lives of the band members, the staff members, the people sitting in these pews, this whole family, Lord, I pray that we would be fearless enough, that we would be courageous enough to believe that your love is true, to believe that we can trust in who you say that we are. And I pray for the courage to be known and seen in the wilderness. We pray these things in your name. stand and join us as we move into worship. This is my prayer. 